tonight because it's this poetic, contemplative picture of everything Scripture tells us throughout Scripture of what happened at Easter. You know, Colossians 2 talks about how Jesus made a public spectacle of the powers of hell. Colossians 2 also tells us that our sin, our shame was nailed to the cross. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that death was defeated, no longer has its sting, that we have victory. Right? Romans 6 says that the very power that raised Christ from the grave is in you and is in me. And that's why we can say like David does at the beginning of Psalm 27, as we sang tonight. Right? If Jesus, if the Lord is our light and our salvation, whom shall we fear? Right? We, we, we sang tonight, fear no longer has a grip on us. And that's why we sang. That's why we celebrated. That's why we came together in worship. Maybe you came tonight and you're thinking, why is everybody so excited? <laughs> why is it so hype in here? It's because of every reality in Scripture that points to what happened at Easter. About halfway through the worship set, I, I was like, I'm losing my voice, and I got to pause because I got to preach tonight. But thank you, Joseph. Thank you, the team, for that incredible worship set this Easter. Yeah, y'all can give it up. But maybe you're one of those people who wandered in here tonight thinking, why are they so excited? Maybe you would say, well, yeah, if death's been defeated, why do we still die? Right? If death is this defeated foe, how come suffering and death seem to be doing so well when I look around the world? There's another verse, it's 2 Timothy chapter 1.10 where it says Jesus destroyed death. Now I love that because destroyed is a, is a potent word, but also the Greek tense is a tricky one. We get the past tense, but the Greek tense for destroyed, it's speaking of something that's going to happen in the future in the past tense. It's because when God calls a shot, you can count it. It's going in. It's like Babe Ruth pointing to the stands saying, I'm going to hit a home run over there. When God calls his shot, it's going to happen. You can almost speak about the things that he talks about in the future as if they're in the past tense. And so it is with death. Death itself won't just be defeated. Death will be dead. But I reflect on that reality because to jump from Good Friday and Christ's crucifixion to Easter Sunday and the celebration, there's often a day that gets forgotten. It's a day when Jesus was still in the tomb. The disciples were still looking around discouraged, thinking it wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be like this. You know, for a lot of us, we may go through life with questions, and I say it every year. There's a power in worshiping on Saturday during Easter weekend. Jesus is risen indeed, right? We could say that tonight, right? We don't have to wait till tomorrow. Jesus is risen indeed. He was risen yesterday. He's risen today, and he's going to be risen forevermore. Every day from now into eternity, Jesus is risen. But we live in a cosmic Saturday of sorts where there's sorrow and grief, there's, there's pain and there's brokenness. We're an Easter people living in a cosmic Saturday. And that takes faith. Faith that just as Sunday came for those disciples, the original Easter weekend, there's a Sunday coming for us when Christ is coming again. But you know the real game changer with Easter isn't just about death's defeat, but it's about the coming of life. Maybe you would think, well, I'm already alive, but I'm talking about eternal life. This phrase you've seen thrown around leading up to Easter, eternal life is now in session. We talk all the time around here, heaven now, heaven forever. Right? Death is but a moment. Life is our ever-present reality, and eternal life is meant to invade our life in this life. Psalm 27, as we quoted before, it starts with the assertion, if the Lord is my light and my salvation, what should I fear? And then you keep reading Psalm 27, and you realize, oh, David had a lot to fear. Right? That song we sang, I'm going to raise my hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. This was David in Psalm 27 talking about armies who were going to attack, enemies who were waiting to snatch him up. Right? He's, he's talking about death. 
Maybe for some of us tonight, it's, it's chronic pain, clinical anxiety, broken relationships or marriages, finances. I don't know what it is for you. We all experience brokenness in different seasons of our life. And if I could just encourage you, don't, don't compare pain, don't compare trauma, because we'll either minimize ours, right, or we'll minimize theirs. Look, people can drown in the deep end or the shallow end, the ocean or a puddle, the ocean or a pond. Pain is pain. Trauma is trauma. God is good. God cares about all of it, all of it. And it's because of that David realized this, that he could say in Psalm 27, verse 13, a, a verse that's become a rallying cry around these parts, that I would have lost hope, but I remain confident that I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living that the eternal life God has for me, I'm going to taste its goodness here and now. And this was David living before Christ. But how much more does it speak prophetically to the reality that we live in, this heightened reality of eternal life post-resurrection? See, Easter and salvation for many has become Christ, Jesus, punching our ticket into heaven. He rose from the grave, and one day I, too, am going to rise from the grave and go to heaven. And praise God for that, right? That's one of the reasons that we worship. But this perspective in itself doesn't affect the land of the living as much as it affects the, the end of our living. When we operate with this perspective that salvation is, is, is about punching our ticket into heaven, once we've got that ticket punched into heaven, so often we check out here on earth. We miss calling. We miss purpose. We miss the eternal life that we're supposed to taste of in this life. But it's because of this broken perspective we have at times about what eternal life truly is. What is salvation? Eternal life isn't just about living forever in heaven. It starts, it starts now. We think of eternal life so often in the length spectrum or the length continuum, but it's also the depth of life. Eternal life in its essence, is, essence isn't quantitative. It's qualitative. And the chief quality of eternal life is relationship with Jesus Christ. The same Jesus that we were worshiping tonight, that is the essence of eternal life. And I'm not just making this up as I go. Jesus gives us a definition for eternal life in Scripture. Right? About as, as clear a definition as you'll find in Scripture. And it's moments before his arrest, moments before the, the, the events of Easter. It's in John 17, verse 3, where Jesus says as he's praying, he says, Now this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, heaven is where God is. We get that. But it, I'll pose you a riddle, right? If, if you were to take God out of heaven, is it still heaven? Because eternal life, it's not tied to a place. It's a relationship with a person, Jesus Christ. Eternal life, it's, Jesus doesn't define it as some transaction that's going to happen in the future where you punch your ticket into heaven. No, he defines eternal life as relationship right now in the present with our risen Savior, King. We think of salvation as a long time from now, standing at the gates of heaven saying, let me in. But eternal life starts now. Jesus is beside us every day in different circumstances where maybe we even forget he's present with us and he's saying, let me in, let me in. Eternal life is in its essence a moment by moment, day by day relationship with the almighty creator, Savior, King of the universe, Jesus Christ into eternity. But you know, if you were to say that to people in Israel when Jesus was walking around and teaching, that would have been profound, a little bit uh, explosive to hear because you couldn't just walk into the temple and say, let me in, and then stroll your way through these, these, these barriers and through the veil into the Holy of Holies. No, no, God put that veil there 
He put it there to separate the common from the holy. As we see in Leviticus, we see in the Old Testament, yet at the moment of Christ's death, what happens? That veil is torn from top to bottom, massive veil. Nobody could get to the top. It's torn from top to bottom as if God the Father was tearing it himself and saying, look, you can enter into a relationship in a new way. And Jesus would say, this is eternal life, that we know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. What does this all mean? It means it's open season on eternal life. As, as the philosopher and theologian Dallas Willard used to put it, eternal life is now in session. God's not up in heaven waiting for eternity to start. He exists in eternity. And, and through the work of the cross and the life of Jesus Christ, he invites us into it. But we miss this reality when, when our, our definitions of salvation and eternal life just get a little off. You know, we, we spent months in this series uh, myth-busting, just looking at the half-truths that, that hurt us. The misconceptions that mislead us and cause us to misstep in life. And, and there are misconceptions we cling to about eternal life and salvation that, that can hurt us in this life. Because I would tell you, look, the veil in the temple on Easter was torn so that it would open a door into relationship with God, relationship with Jesus. But there's so often veils that remain in our, in our minds that keep us from walking through that door. And the veil was torn on Easter in the temple so we could enter into relationship, eternal life with God, knowing him, knowing Jesus Christ who he sent. But these veils in our minds are just perspectives, paradigms that need to shift. So I want to spend the next few weeks considering nothing but eternity, eternal life, and salvation. Right? The work of Easter, why Jesus came, and what did he say about it? Because eternal life, again, is relationship with God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And how you think about Jesus will reflect your relationship with him, right? How you think about Jesus affects how you relate to him, what you expect to receive from him, and what level of faith you have. And tonight I want to turn to John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. Here in John 15, Jesus makes this statement, I am the true vine. He goes on to say, you are the branches. This is meant to profoundly impact how we relate to him. So I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse, what is it, 17. John chapter 15, 1 through 17. Jesus is, we'll get to the context in a bit, but he's talking to his disciples, and he says, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned, but if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. That brings great glory to the Father. I have loved you, even as the Father has loved you. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I've loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. 
I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. No, you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. Love each other. So that's a big portion of Scripture. But before we even dive into it, I want to look at the context. Because this happened during Holy Week, the week we just went through celebrating as a church. They had just had the, the Last Supper, and Jesus takes them on a walk, right? Uh, this, is, this is practical. This is what the youth would call hashtag relatable, right? You, you, you fill up. When I was young, we were in D.C., so we'd eat Thanksgiving dinner, fill up on the turkey, all the sides, and then we'd have relatives in town. So we just walked D.C. We'd walk the mall, show them the monuments, show them the, the, all the cool structures, and this was a, a walk and talk. Jesus takes them walking, and, and they're going from uh, upper room in downtown Jerusalem. And they're going through the streets to the Garden of Gethsemane, right at the base of the Mount of Olives. And as they were making that walk, they would have passed what was the most uh, significant structure in that entire city. They would have passed the temple. And this is Jesus. You have to remember, this is his last conversation he was having with his disciples before he was going to be arrested. This was what they were going to be replaying in their minds during sleepless nights that weekend after Jesus was arrested. Their, their, their beloved teacher, their beloved friend, arrested and dead. Imagine the rolling around in bed, replaying these conversations, replaying the Last Supper and everything that led up to his arrest. And if we play back that walk and talk in our minds as the disciples no doubt did in theirs, archaeologists, right, historians, would tell us that on this walk from downtown Jerusalem, when you're walking from there to the Garden of Gethsemane, they would have reached a point in that journey where at one point there was on one side a vineyard, massive vineyards, grapevines, vines with all kinds of things growing on them. And then on the other side, there would have been the temple and the entrance to the temple. Now on the entrance to the temple was this massive gold uh, sculpture of a vine. The, the historian Josephus says some of the clusters of grape were so big, they were as big as a man. This was a massive sculpture of a vine that would have been over the entrance to the temple. And many theologians assume or, or assert that this is probably where Jesus turned to his disciples and said as he did in John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. We think, okay, give Jesus some points there for a nice word picture, pretty good allegory there, nice little analogy. But we have to dive into the context of Scripture as a whole because him saying this in that culture, again, it would have been explosive. It would have shook people on their foundations. Because in the Old Testament, in Psalm 80 and, and other passages like it, it gives us this picture of God's relationship with the Israelites. In Psalm 80, it says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it, and it took deep root and filled the land. And over time, the vine became this patriotic symbol for Israel. Kind of like the, the bald eagle is a patriotic symbol for America, or the lion for England, or the rising sun for Japan. The, the vine became a patriotic symbol. That's why there was a massive vine that marked the temple, because it marked God's people. And if you were, were not an Israelite, and you wanted to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You wanted to worship the God of this temple. You had to take on their culture, their customs, from dietary restrictions to circumcision. You know, but ultimately, the Israelites themselves failed miserably. And you get passages in the Old Testament like Isaiah 5 where God says, What more could I have done for my vineyard 
that I have not already done. When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? So as the disciples walked and Jesus taught, and they passed this vineyard on one side and the entrance to the temple on the other that would have evoked all these emotions and thoughts. It's where Jesus says the words, I am the true vine. And the word true is key because that means there's counterfeit vines. Right? Think about the things that we attach to in this life to try to find life. Whether it's habits, whether it's products, whether it's relationships or habits. These things we attach to thinking it'll give us life. And, and mind you, they do. For a bit, for a season, right? That's why they're such a distraction from Christ, because they'll make you happy for a time. They'll make you happy for a season. But it's truly only Jesus, the true vine that offers us eternal life. That doesn't just scratch the itch, but fills the void, the eternity-sized void we see in the Old Testament with Ecclesiastes. So this is a powerful picture. I'm the true vine. But for the listeners of Jesus' time, it was more than that. Because he's saying, look, don't attach yourself to a nation or rituals or a people. Attach yourself to a person, me, Jesus Christ. Jesus was saying that the place of rootedness was no longer a nation or a land. It was Jesus. No longer a nation, a people, but a person, Jesus Christ. It was no longer about living in or owning the vineyard, but being part of the vine. Imagine the hurtful history, the crusades that could have been avoided if the church always grasped this. It's not about taking territory. It's about God advancing by capturing hearts, advancing heart by heart. That's how his kingdom grows. So we often talk about inviting Christ into our hearts. When it comes to salvation in our culture, it's one of the most common ways we talk about those moments of salvation and stepping into eternal life. We invite Jesus into our hearts. And there's nothing heretical or unbiblical about that. The Bible speaks to that. But I would tell you that unchecked and unbalanced, that can translate to, well, he comes into my life. Even Joseph was alluding to the image of the potter and the clay where, where we're still the potter. Or we're, we're the vine and he's a branch that gets added on. Or, or he gets a room in our house or, or a, a compartment in our heart where it becomes compartmentalized. And again, the idea of Jesus in us is in the Bible. It's right here in John 15, the passage we read tonight. But it's key to note, when Jesus says he'll remain in us, it always follows directly the idea of us remaining in him. But elsewhere in Scripture, you see, once you see the idea of Jesus in our heart, Paul, five times in his letter, speaks to Christ in me or Christ in us. So five times. Anybody want to take a, a guess at how many times he speaks to being in Christ? Thank you. She said 100. Good guess. It's 165. So five times he talks about Christ in us. So again, that's not unbiblical. That's not heretical. But you see, there's definitely a leaning when 165 times in his letters he speaks to being in Christ. You want to know why I think this would have been such a resounding reality for Paul? Think about his first interaction with Jesus, his conversion experience on the road to Damascus where he's going to persecute Christians, imprison Christians. He's, he stood over the stoning of Christians, like Stephen. And what does Jesus say to him? Why are you persecuting me? Now, why are you persecuting my church? Now, why are you persecuting the people I love? Now, why are you persecuting the people that worship me? But why are you persecuting me? And I don't think this moment just revealed Jesus to Paul, but it revealed something profound about the depth of life that we're supposed to have in him. That like a branch to a vine, when we unify ourselves to him, we become a part of him. So I want to turn again to Christ's words 
Not to Paul, but to his disciples in John 15, where he speaks to abiding in him and remaining in him. Some half dozen times in a dozen verses. And he gives this picture of the vine. Abiding in the vine, remaining in the vine. So the question is, how does this speak to the eternal life that we've been gifted at Easter? With this veil being torn, knowing God, knowing Jesus, how does it relate to that? How does it practically apply to tomorrow, next week? So I want to look at two aspects of abiding tonight. And the first is that it's continuous. When you're a branch of a vine and you're abiding in that vine, it's continuous. You know, I recently got a new phone. It wasn't because I'm one of those people that, like, lusts over the new model. I always got the newest this, newest that. My old phone was, like, six models old. What was wrong with my old phone is I would plug it in, but the connection wasn't there. So if I, I would put it down and expect to come back to a charged phone, I'd come back to nothing better than a coaster or a paperweight because it's just this dead brick. I would go to bed, right? I got to wake up early to get my son on the bus. And uh, I don't naturally wake up at that time. And there were a couple nights where, like, it wasn't at the right angle, so the, the charge wasn't there, and, and I slept through the alarm. I had to rush to get up. Not ideal, right? Not ideal. Practically speaking, we're about to go to the DR with a team of, of, of people, and I'm in charge. Having a phone that's a brick when you're in charge of all these people out of country, practically speaking, it's not ideal. But spiritually speaking, how often do we settle into this unideal, where our connection with Christ is kind of on again, off again? And as a result, we wake up in the morning feeling Absent of life. And I love my new phone. I love cell phones in general because I can still remember, many of us can still remember, having corded phones, landlines, right, where it's like a, 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 a jail cell that's like six feet in diameter when you're on the phone. You could go nowhere. That's why cordless is in, it's awesome. Cordless represents freedom. You know, because Steph's, because of Steph's health, her, her, just her back or that whole situation, uh, my father-in-law bought us a Roomba. You know what Roomba is? It's, it's a wireless vacuum, right? It sits on the dock, and then I can push a button on my phone, and it vacuums the floors. It's amazing. Raj loves it. Raj is three. He, he just chases the thing around. It's the closest thing to a pet he's ever going to have, right? He's just chasing this Roomba around the floor, having the time of his life. I'm like, hey, man, just be grateful you don't got to take care of it. You got to empty it every now and again, but you got to clean up after it. It cleans up after us. That's the kind of pet I want. What am I talking about? Oh, cordless. <laughs> Cordless is a game changer, right? And then you start thinking, why isn't everything cordless? Right, well, why can't all these other things in life be cordless? We hold it in high esteem. But then we settle into a version of cordless Christianity. Right, we picture our relationship with Jesus as plugging into the word or prayer or church every now and again before returning to whatever else we were doing. It becomes about just sustaining as we go out to do other things. Where all of those things, all those disciplines are kind of compartmentalized. They get a part of our life, but... Not all of it. And like my old phone, we find ourselves waking up in the morning without life and life abundant. See, Jesus doesn't talk about doing just enough for sustaining. He talks about remaining. He talks about abiding. In verses 4 and 5 in this passage, he says, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch can't produce fruit if it's severed from the vine and you can't be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He just said the same thing twice in two verses. When Jesus says something like that twice, it's because he wants to be abundantly clear. Don't miss this. Apart from him, unplugged from him, what can you do? Nothing. Buckus. Zilch. Nada. Nothing. Outside of him. Unplugged from him. You'll be active. You might produce things. You'll be green. 
Maybe you have leaves, but you're not going to produce fruit. What God desires in our life is fruit. How do we remain? How do we produce this fruit? In verse 7 of John 15, Jesus compares remaining in Christ to remaining in his word. What's his word for us? It's this right here, his Bible, scripture, his word. But those stats from the series, myth busting, you've heard them a hundred times if you've been coming here. I apologize. But of those people who check the box for Christian, who attend church, 80% a recent survey found don't open their Bible outside of church. It's no wonder we're making all these missteps due to misconceptions because for the most part, we've misplaced our Bibles, right? We've misplaced our Bibles. How many of us would define our time in God's word as sporadic rather than spontaneous or, or every so often rather than continuous? If that characterizes your relationship with God and his word, then it's kind of like breaking a branch off a vine again and again and trying to graft it back in and expecting fruit. We're called to abide to abide in him, and he abides in us through his word. And, and this word continuous, when I use it, I'm not talking you're in this 24-7. Like I shouldn't even be preaching right now because I should be reading the Bible. No, I'm talking about, let me tell you, there's just three of us in my house and laundry is constant, right? Like it's tell me that have more than one kid. You're like, yes, laundry is continuous, right? Dishwashing, continuous. So many things in life, continuous. When you have kids, the drip of coffee out of your Keurig, continuous, right? All these things, continuous because they don't stop. So it is with us and God's word. This abiding sounds so poetic. Abiding. But it's not complex. It's simple. You know, I used to break it down for students and anybody who asked. Let, read God's word. Let him tell you something from his word. And then tell him something with your words. Right, that, that could be your quiet time with God. It doesn't have to be a long time. I heard it explained this way once. Open up the Bible. Read until something hits your conviction. Pray about it and then go do something about it doesn't have to be complex. doesn't have to be complex, but it needs to be continuous. Continuous. But you know the context of continuous connection that we see in Scripture again and again? It's the bride of Christ. It's the church. It's where we worship and praise Jesus together for his death and resurrection, not just once a year, but throughout the year when Jesus is risen. In the same book in John, in chapter 20, Jesus is risen from the grave, and Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb because she wants to pay her respects, right, to see the tomb for her own eyes. And when she got there, it was empty. So she runs and gets some of the disciples. They come back. And then as she's going to leave, it's kind of just this figure to the side. It says she thought it was the gardener, right, but it was, it was Jesus. I don't know if it was because of a veil of tears over her eyes or she's in mourning, so her head is bowed, but Jesus is right there next to her, and it says that she thought he was the gardener. Now, I don't think it's, it's, it's coincidence that when the Holy Spirit is inspiring John to write his gospel, John is the one gospel where we get this analogy of, of Jesus being the vine and we're the branches. And John is the one gospel where it speaks to this detail that she thought he was the gardener. You know what the, the name of a, a full-time gardener is in, in traditional English language? It's a, a husbandman. They do husbandry. And it's John's gospel in John 15, 1 in the King James Version that says, I am the vine and my father is the husbandman. That's powerful for us because who's the bride? The church. It's the church. The church is the context of this continuous connection to the vine, directed by the hand of God, the gardener. You know, the, the, the last verse we read tonight, the culminating verse in Jesus's thoughts before he transitions into a new thought is, hey, this is my command, love one another. Again, this is something we see twice in just those few verses we read. This is my command. 
love one another. He doesn't want us to miss this. You know, there are approximately 59 one another's in the New Testament. Many of them spoken by Jesus himself. This is one of them. Good luck walking in those 59 one another's alone. Good luck one anothering in the mirror. Good good luck loving one another in isolation. Where do we walk those out practically? In Scripture, we see it's it's Christ's bride, the church. You know, if you you look at a vine and the branches of a vine, there's there's tendrils that extend. That they they just kind of reach to grab onto something. There was a vine growing on my shed, and I was tearing that thing off. And you just see these tendrils, right? They're trying to latch onto something. And we reach up towards God, Jesus, the true vine. And Jesus implies that if we turn upward to God in love, we'll turn outward in love much the same way to those around us. But you know the bend of my flesh, the bend of our sin nature is inward. Me, myself, and I. You know, when those vine tendrils, as I was looking at that vine, they didn't latch onto something. They just kind of curl in on themselves again and again and again and again. And so it is in our lives. When we don't reach out in love, we just focus on self. You know, we talked about heaven and salvation. Hell and damnation is really nothing more than turning in on yourself into eternity. Augustine once spoke of incurvatus in se, which means curved in on oneself rather than outward for others. It's extra biblical, but see, as Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, the culture and climate of hell is not one of torture and fire and brimstone, but the absence of anything beyond this inward bend towards self. No thought towards others, imprisoned in self. Basically, solitary confinement by choice into eternity. It's like his famous quote where he once said, it's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. Another little image of gardening. That's why God's chief concern, I would tell you, is not some distant crossing into heaven. Yes, he's, he's concerned with that, but his chief concern is getting heaven into us right now. Eternal life, Jesus in us, his kingdom, his perspectives in us in this life. So like God is this husbandman, the, the, the gardener, and he knows how to grow us. And like a support for a vine to grow on, he, he gives us the cross, which is really a, a picture of something a vine could grow upon. But then he also gives us the church. He gives us the, the, what I would call the family of faith. Right? I love that image of the church because we're all born. Anybody that has kids, you know we're born with this perspective. Hey, the world revolves around me. When Raj needs something, oh, he'll let you know. And he expects you to do it for him. Right? Or even younger than him, if, if, if a baby needs something tonight, they're just going to cry until you come to serve them, hand and feet. But you know there's a, a time in life, can't really put a finger on it because there's some people our age that haven't figured this out yet, where everything doesn't revolve around you. Right? The, the, we, we, what family teaches us is that, oh, I don't just have needs. My brother has needs. My sister has needs. I can't tell you. We, we adopted Raj at 17 months. So we've been in this atmosphere for long enough you talk about trauma where he had to fight for food. He had to fight for toys. If my son has pulled your child's hair or slapped your child, I apologize. He's still working on that. But you know what? There was a point where, you know, we would feed Raj, and he would expect, my parents feed me. But there was a moment one time where Steph was feeding him cereal, and he took, I think it was a Cheerio, and he just held it up to her mouth and was like, ah, because he wanted to feed her, right? He realized, no, it's not just about me, right? I got people around me to feed. I got people around me that have needs. That's what family teaches you. And that's why God gives us the family of faith, because if our command is to love one another, where do we walk that out? We certainly practice it here. We walk it out in the world. But so many of those one another's we can't do without this right here, the church. 
but it's not just continuous. If we're going to remain attached to the vine, what does that look like? It's, it's organic. It's not rote routine. It's not a, a checklist. It's not mechanical. It's natural. It's relational. You could call it organic. Right? When, when your love for your spouse becomes a checklist and rote routine, let me tell you, you're already in trouble. And so it is with our relationship with God. You know, Jesus, in his commentary of the religious leaders and the Pharisees of his day, he said, look, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. And he was quoting the prophet Isaiah who defined this farcical worship as rote routine. Look, they could talk a good talk. They could look right, do the right things, but they weren't abiding in Jesus. He actually says, no, they're far from me. Not only are they disconnected, they're far from me. See, when you abide in Christ, it's not about checking boxes. It's about walking in relationship. Look, charging my phone, yeah, that's routine. Otherwise, I end up with a coaster or a paperweight. It's a box you check or your phone will die. But abiding in Christ should be relational, natural. You know, we see it in Jesus' words that fruit is essential. There's fruit of character he wants to see in our lives. There's fruit of obedience that he wants to see in our lives. But we don't focus primarily on the fruit. That's what the trap that the Pharisees fell into. They focused so much on religious rituals and wrote routine that Jesus says they forgot what Jesus had placed at the center. Justice, mercy, love. Focus on what's at the center. Focus on where we put down roots. Focus on abiding in Jesus, the vine, because fruit bearing, character in your life, obedience in your life, it will come from, flow from, it's a byproduct of being attached to the vine, Jesus. It's a game changer, this idea of, of focusing on abiding in Christ where, where fruit is a natural, organic byproduct. And all of this sounds lofty. <laughs> all of this sounds ethereal. But when we can apply this practically, it's a game changer. Where no longer do we do things for Christ, but we do them in Christ. That perspective seems simple, but it's such a massive shift. Because so often we pause to operate spiritually in a moment so that we can get back to navigating the, the secular or the mundane that's happening in our life. But a life abiding in Christ does all things in Christ. Instead of life seemingly full of disconnected tasks and to-do lists, some full of purpose, some not, right? Some spiritual, some not. It's all unified when we live in union with Christ. Responsibilities that seem like obstacles to godly life are in fact the very place that Jesus needs us. Like you might think, I'd be out serving the homeless, right? I'd, I'd be reading my Bible six hours a day. I'd be uh, ministering to the widows and orphans and praying over and over and over again if I didn't have all these kids to tend to and feed, diapers to change, right? Laundry to do, a nine to five to work, a hustle to pay the mortgage. But then you realize that you can do all those things in Christ, right? When you parent, you do it in Christ. When you work your nine to five, you do it in Christ. When you face turmoil and suffering, you do it in Christ. When you celebrate wins, you do it in Christ. You don't have to strain to do things for Christ, but you do all things in them. And as you walk in this awareness, living connected continuously instead of compartmentalized Christianity, plugging in, plugging out, the fruit is organic. You know, if I could have the, the worship team come up, we're going to go into worship at the back end, but again, salvation it's not primarily about entering the gate of heaven one day or something we'll experience after we die. It's about eternal life, the life that Jesus has for us, saturating our life bit by bit and day by day, remaining in Christ, 
abiding in the vine. And I've got these pieces of, of fabric vine up here. They're nothing special. They're just little pieces of vine, about maybe five inches long. Why do I have them up here? Because I want us to take them tonight, and as we celebrate Easter tomorrow, I hope every one of us remembers that when Jesus stepped out of that grave, he stepped into a garden. And when, when, when Mary saw Jesus and said, oh, she thought he was a gardener. Maybe we think that's some simple mistake recorded in Scripture, but I would tell you that is a prophetic picture. The Holy Spirit would have uh, prompted jo John to put down because God is the gardener. Jesus is the vine. He's where we find life. This is a door that was thrown open at Easter. This door to the temple, we don't have to stop at the veil. The veil was torn. We can walk into knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's eternal life. And we can step into this. We can know God is the gardener and Jesus Christ is the vine that we abide in, we remain in. Again, how we think about God, how we think about Jesus is going to affect the way we relate to him, what we expect from him, what we receive from him in this life. And as we go into worship again, you can come up and grab these vines, but maybe for you, it will speak to this idea of continual abiding. Maybe time in the word, time in prayer, it's atrophy. You haven't done it, it just kind of got weak. And you've been mostly fruitless in that area because you've been living mostly cordless. Maybe it's prayer, maybe it's the word, maybe it's, maybe it's coming together and gathering. But man, maybe you take one of these, you put it in your Bible as a reminder. Again, that it's not about checking a box, that I gotta read X amount of verses. No, it's about abiding. Maybe God speaks to you in one verse, you pray about it, and then go do something about it. Right, you, you let it speak to you, and then you speak to God in prayer. Maybe you, you put it in your calendar. If any of us have paper calendars anymore, <laughs> because you realize everything you do that's scheduled, it's not, oh, this has purpose, this doesn't, this is secular, this is spiritual. No, we do all those things in God. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we all do it for the glory of God, and we do it in Christ. But there's a last person I want to talk to. And maybe that's somebody here you've been living unplugged, completely unplugged from the source, unplugged from the life. Maybe you've never, ever stepped into a relationship with Jesus. You never started that life in him, in his love, in his grace, and in obedience to him. Or maybe you're like the prodigal. You've simply unplugged, and you've tapped into counterfeit vines. You realize that that's, that's not going to cut it. That's not eternal life. That's not the life I need. It's time to connect to the vine again. And whether you've been living unplugged your whole life or just you need to plug back in for the hundredth time, that's you tonight. Come on, as we come up and grab one of these, the Nowatneys would love to pray for you. I'll be right here. I'd love to pray for you. If you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray for you. But if that's you tonight, you realize, man, I need to connect to the vine. I've been disconnected. Whether it's for a season or your whole life, Remember that at Easter, God tore that veil so that we could know him and we can know Jesus Christ who he sent. But you know what? Let's take time as we close to abide in praise and worship. Yeah, Joseph didn't know what we were preaching on tonight, but at the end of the worship set as he was closing, he said, this is what it's all about, connecting with Jesus. It's what life's all about, being connected to the vine. Let's practice that in our praise and let's practice that in our worship. And let's remember, again, as Joseph encouraged us, it's not just here with the band. It's all our life we get to do in Christ, plugged into the vine, abiding in him and remaining in him. But let's take one of these as this reminder and this commitment to abiding in him as we praise tonight. Oh, Lord, 
you're beautiful. 